Welcome to the Paralegal Voice, where you hear the latest issues and trends in the world of paralegals and legal assistance by two of the best-known paralegals in the industry, Vicki Voison and Linda Venny. Each of them paralegals for over 20 years and both dedicated to helping legal professionals reach their goals. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Paralegal Voice here on Legal Talk Network. I'm Vicki Voison, the Paralegal Mentor and host of the Paralegal Voice. I'm a NALA Advanced Certified Paralegal, and I publish a weekly e-newsletter titled Paralegal Strategies. I'm also the co-author of The Professional Paralegal, a guide to finding a job and career success. You'll find more information at paralegalmentor.com. My guest today is Beverly Michaelis of Portland, Oregon. Welcome, Beverly. Thank you, Vicki. Nice to be here. Before we begin, I want to take just a second to thank our incredible sponsor, NALA, a professional association for paralegals providing continuing education and professional certification programs for paralegals at NALA.org. NALA is a real force in the promotion and advancement of the paralegal profession and has been a sponsor of the Paralegal Voice since the beginning, so we're very grateful for that. The goal of the Paralegal Voice is to discuss a wide range of topics important to the paralegal industry and share with you leading trends, significant developments, and resources you'll find helpful in your career and your everyday job. Guests are usually included to help explore timely topics, so I've invited Beverly Michaels to be my guest today to discuss communicating with clients. Beverly is the Practice Management Advisor for the State Bar of Oregon. She's also a member of the Oregon State Bar, Oregon Trial Lawyers Association, and the American Bar Association. She has over 25 years' experience in the legal field as a lawyer and a legal assistant. In her position as practice management advisor, she provides confidential practice management assistance to Oregon attorneys to reduce their risk of malpractice claims, enhance their enjoyment of practicing law, and improve their client relationships through clear communication and efficient delivery of legal services. She's a contributing author and also a frequent speaker on a variety of practice management, technology, and malpractice avoidance topics for law-related organizations, including the Professional Liability Fund, the Oregon State Bar, the Oregon Trial Lawyers Association, the American Bar Association, and Legal Talk Network. Beverly blogs at Oregon Law Practice Management, and you can follow her on Twitter for breaking legal news, practice management tips, and the latest developments in technology. And Beverly, I met you, and I put that in quotes, on Twitter, and I follow you there, as well as watch your blog posts in my RSS feed. You've always got lots of great information. And what's also interesting is that you were a legal assistant prior to going to law school. And I know attending law school has crossed my mind, and probably many listeners have had the same thoughts. Uh, Tell us just a bit about your journey to becoming an attorney. Yes, absolutely. And it may be different than what you thought or anticipated, because in my particular case, I did know that I wanted to go on law school when I was in high school and found a job when I was in undergraduate school, 
And about three years in, a posting or an opportunity became available in a law office as a legal assistant, and I had done a brief internship for a legal nonprofit. That was enough to get my foot in the door as a staff person and oddly became an associate at that same firm too. So I really did go at it from the get-go knowing that I wanted to be a lawyer. That's interesting because I think uh, not all of us have that goal in the beginning. And then as we start working with it, we can, you know, we think, you know, that might be a really good idea. So, uh, and that's interesting. Some people, you know, work as a, as a paralegal or a legal assistant to get through law school too until they can become an associate or whatever. Well, today's topic, communicating with clients, is an important one for both attorneys and paralegals. Communication methods have really changed over the years, and especially with the advances in technology. Beverly, I was intrigued by your blog post, which was in defense of lawyers who write letters, because they're writing fewer and fewer letters today. Right, absolutely, that's true. Everyone wants to communicate by email. Everyone wants instant answers. We find that a lot of lawyers are texting back and forth with with their clients. So I was also interested in the topic, and what spurred the blog post was I met with a lawyer in a little bit more rural area of our state who said, you know, I still like to compose and write letters. Now, I might send them as an attachment to an email, but I purposely choose to write a letter because I feel that I treat the matter more thoughtfully and professionally when I do. It was really a coping tool in a sense that he used, and then he saves email just for quick, short, simple communication, which honestly was the original intent of email. And I think uh, in some sense it gets a tad misused. I think so. And when I speak on ethics, one of the things that I talk about is this 24-7 availability that clients are starting to expect attorneys to have. They want an instant response. And so they're texting and emailing and that kind of thing. But the problem is, is that, you know, there is an ethical obligation to use good judgment. And when you fire back a response that quickly, I'm not sure you're always taking the time to give it the thought and the judgment that it might need. So that's a, that's a really good reason for writing. And, and also, the ABA has, is finally catching up with technology, and they've adopted rules regarding communicating with clients. And uh, and, and changes to those rules. So just give us a brief overview of um, of what the ABA has been doing. Right, absolutely. As part of the 2020 Ethics Commission, recent model opinions being issued and also changes to the model rules themselves that occurred last year, lawyers now, for example, are specifically obligated to stay abreast of technology, but also to understand the risks and the benefits of it. Lawyers are also expected to continue responding promptly to client requests. Comments to the rule now make it explicitly clear that the expectation is you respond promptly when emailed or texted, too. So these other forms of communicating are being acknowledged through the rules. And at the same time, we're obligated to prevent inadvertent disclosure of confidential information and then to inform others if we inadvertently receive confidential information. So it's becoming quite a challenging practice scene these days, that's for sure. Well, it's important that paralegals keep up with the attorney's ethical obligations. Uh, we're, we're obligated to, to um, behave ethically ourselves. But we need to help attorneys as much as possible 
And, and so how can we assist attorneys with those obligations? I do have some basic pointers here, and, and some of these may already be implemented within your firms, but it's still a good idea to sort of run through the list and make sure that all these components are present. First and foremost, I would have a message header on outgoing emails that identifies a that the email itself is confidential. If you're not the intended recipient, to please inform the sender immediately, delete it from your system. I know that some question that the point of that, because if an email goes to the wrong individual, the cat is sort of out of the bag. But nonetheless, it is an accepted practice to have that header or disclaimer. One very important, extremely practical tip that we've been coaching people for a number of years now is that every new client ought to get a welcome message if you're going to communicate by email. It's just a very brief, dear client, this is to confirm your email address. Please reply. We look forward to working with you. Something to that effect to verify that you have the correct email, just as one would want to verify they had the correct fax number before they sent a 50-page settlement agreement. So the idea is initiate something short and simple to verify the address is correct, uh, but also to understand the technology, how auto-caching and auto-name-fill works in programs like Outlook, because it's very easy to intend to send an email to Vicki Voison, but instead to send it to Vicki Smith. Um, so understanding technology is key. And then you mentioned client expectations of 24-hour, 24-7 turnaround. I think law firms need to have a communication policy. And we can talk about that more as we get into that, but something that uh, helps them to control client expectations. Obviously, it needs to be described to clients. You need to keep your promises and fulfill what you say you're going to do. But it's very important to spell that out. And then last but not least, I think it's a good idea to have a backup plan. Since lawyers are now beholden to, quote, respond promptly, no matter how they're contacted by a client, if they're not available, a paralegal can respond. That is, assuming the paralegal knows there was contact. And that's another challenge we can talk about, too. But they can let the client know that the lawyer will, will get to them and that the message has been received, but the lawyer is delayed, for example. I really like the idea of the welcome message. And I'm going to pass that one along because I haven't seen that being used. I, I always say that it's really important not to uh, communicate with the client by email unless they give you permission. And I think that's something that should be um, addressed right in the engagement letter. What do you think about that? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And we have a sample engagement letter that we make available to our lawyers. And you raise a very good point that technically you should get the client's consent to communicate and using whatever method is chosen, whether that's going to be texting, whether it's unencrypted email. So that's one very important piece. And then I know you also wanted to discuss the issue of attorney-client privilege, and there are a lot of considerations around that, too, uh, practical pointers that the lawyer needs to look into and also uh, topics they need to discuss with their client. Well, Beverly, I think that we'll take just a short break for a word from our sponsor. And then when we come back, we'll get into some more of those details. Is that all right with you? Absolutely. Okay. Well, it's time to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, NALA, the Association of Legal Assistance Paralegals. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Beverly Michaelis, Practice Management Advisor for the Oregon State Bar. 
and we'll learn more about communicating with clients. We'll be right back. Nala means professional. Nala offers classroom and web-based continuing education and professional development for all paralegals. And Nala's certified paralegal credential has been a gold standard of professionalism for over 30 years. More than 15,000 paralegals have this certification, and nearly 2,000 have achieved the demanding advanced certified paralegal. Nala works actively with others in the legal field to promote the value of paralegals and to advance paralegal professionalism. See more about why Nala means professional at www.nala.org. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, I, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a, a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in, less than, in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Welcome back to the Paralegal Voice. I'm Vicki Voison, and today we're discussing tips for communicating with clients. My guest is Beverly Michaels, Practice Management Advisor for the Oregon State Bar. Now, Beverly, as we've been discussing uh, how we communicate with clients, uh, we've brought up the fact that so many legal professionals are communicating primarily by electronic methods. So let's discuss some of the risks that they should be aware of. Yes, absolutely. So probably the most important, and this is an evolving area because different jurisdictions have reached different results about this issue, but the concept of reaching attorney-client privilege and confidentiality. One of the uh, potential traps that people often don't appreciate is, let's say the lawyer wishes to communicate by email because that's most convenient for the lawyer. They sort of, in some sense, coerce the client into it, but the client does agree, I will communicate with email by you, with you, but the lawyer does not inquire how the client is going to go about accessing those communications. And jurisdictions, there are jurisdictions who have held that if a client is accessing their email on the job, so they are using the employer's computer system, the employer's internet connection, of course, an absolute worst case scenario, their work email address, and they're receiving so-called confidential messages from their lawyer, does that Avoid the attorney-client privilege, and some jurisdictions have held that it does. Others will investigate a bit further and see, well, did the employer have a reasonable personal use policy regarding Internet access? Was the email being used actually the employee's work address, or was it a personal account at Hotmail or Outlook.com or Gmail? Um, but the, the bottom line is this. 
you should assume, if you want to be most safe, that anything that you send to anyone as lawyer or paralegal to client, that, that the client is reading at a work location is not going to be privileged. So there should be language in the engagement letter. We were talking about letters earlier and the importance of the client consenting to communication by unencrypted email. But you also need to personally coach the client about these issues. That's probably number one on my radar screen. Yeah. Well, I've always, uh, I've always urged people, as I said before, to be sure that they get the client's permission, but to be sure that a, cl- a client's comfortable with email, too. Uh, there are some that don't open their email very often. Um, again, uh, the third-party issue is there. Say a client's wife has it's also on that email account, or or sister or brother, whatever uh, secretary, and then you know then the communication would lose the privilege. And um, you know these this is all discoverable. The the federal rules of uh, the, the rules of discovery apply to this and 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 they say that you know you can use the you can discover all of these messages if uh, if it's necessary if it leads to the to discovery so i think that they need to be very very careful about that your your um your words of wisdom are very well taken um there are again beyond the issues of confidentiality and privilege we have deadlines that have to be met and how can we be sure that that's happening if we're only communicating by email. Right. There is a concern there because, of course, although I have to admit this is true of any form of communication, you can't control whether any message that you convey to another person is going to be opened, read, viewed, and responded to. I think if if you're on a tight deadline and you want to know for a fact that the person is receiving the information you're trying to convey, the clock is ticking, you need to pick up the phone and have that instant known contact with that other party. That would be true whether it was an opposing party or a client, anyone you're trying to reach out to on short notice to meet a deadline. You know, people also assume the email is instantly delivered. We've had some experiences here sending email back and forth between personal accounts and work accounts that it's been a number of hours. So it's not instantaneous transmission from point A to point B either. The person's email account could be full. Their message could be in the junk mail folder caught by the spam filter. And there are spam filters that are very aggressive. Uh, I wrote an article for our bar bulletin on um, e-court malpractice. And one of the most common things that trips people up who file electronically is that the important court notices with the key deadlines get are going to spam filters and junk mail folders and people aren't seeing them and they're blowing the deadline. And this has happened repeatedly in many jurisdictions. So uh, there's that component. I think there are just times you've got to pick up the phone and make a telephone call. There's no way around it. You know, it's interesting that dentists and doctors always have someone making those calls a couple of days ahead of the appointment. I don't think that's always the the uh, procedure that law firms use, and they they might need to do that, just that quick follow-up. Right, absolutely. If you have an appointment or maybe um, you've scheduled a conference to meet with a client to prepare them for their testimony at trial, at hearing, at deposition, those are generally set 
a distance out. He might contact the client initially, set that up. Maybe the deposition is scheduled a month from now, and so the, the preparation for that is just shortly before. So anytime you've got a commitment like that on the calendar that's especially a, a bit out, it's always good to have a reminder. And it just doesn't take that long to pick up the phone and make that call. Again, I wouldn't assume that an email sent is an email read. Right. And people don't always calendar things the way others do. And, you know, all of that goes into it. So some communications aren't as important as others. We know that, although we want everyone to get everything that we send them. But how do legal professionals decide when they can communicate electronically safely or whether they should save that for U.S. mail? Right. Very good question. And I think we've addressed the topic of attorney-client privilege and client consent. Does the client even agree to communicate in a particular manner? And can we do it confidentially and not void the privilege? That's sort of one initial layer that is going to take a lot of judgment on the part of the lawyer. But I think once you set that aside, just the, the bare-bones question of what is the best way to get my point across or get the information, ask the question of the client, and you can choose from emailing, texting, calling, or sending a letter, or I suppose sending a fax even. You have to choose the method that makes sense and works and will produce the result. Uh, tips I would give to as to when to avoid email, and I know we, we all get these messages and the, the first temptation is to reply by email because the person initiated communication that way. But if you're in any of the following circumstances, if you receive a message and you are not sure the question being asked, this happens to me, someone will write in and pose something and I can either sit there and try to interpret, are they really asking about A, B, or C? And then that becomes a very lengthy reply by me because I have to sort of address the A, the B, and the C, because I don't know which it is. Uh, and that kind of leads to the next point when the matter is complicated, and maybe that's a bit of a redundancy there, but, but the more detailed your answer has to be. Remember, email was supposed to be short, simple, yes, no, conveying a date, confirming something. It, it was never meant for, uh, you know, we, email messages are not for 50-page reports. <laughs> so when you have to be that detailed, I think you need to give, you need to proof it more carefully. You need to consider it more carefully. You need to compose it more carefully. Email is not appropriate. And then sometimes the subject matter is sensitive. Um, if we try to put it in writing, no matter how, text, email, fax, letter, our words could be misinterpreted. When you have that exchange in person or over the phone, you have a lot more control through the intonation of your voice, through nonverbal cues that you give when you're communicating. You can have an exchange with the client where you can be sure that they really are, are getting the message that you're intending to give. So those are just, I think, some common sense things to consider. Those are great tips. Now, what we've talked about is our communications with the client, but what about when we have a communication from a client? How do we hold up our end of the bargain and to be sure that we are, are doing what we need to do? Absolutely. I believe, number one, you do have to specify a communication policy, that you have a time frame that you hold out to clients within which you will respond to calls, you will respond to email. You should also communicate to clients about 
what your preferences are for meeting with them since clients do at times have a propensity to drop in unannounced rather than scheduling an appointment. So I do believe lawyers can retake control. They do not have to be available 24-7. They can specify, just as our doctors, our dentists, and many, many other professionals specify their office hours, their means of communication. So, for example, on our website, we have proposed telephone communication policies. We talk to people about these issues. I'm also not um, automatically in favor of, of giving my cell phone as a lawyer to every client that I might meet. I think that a lot of this can be controlled by being a little bit more particular about offering these means of communication to clients. So it starts with establishing those parameters. And so, for example, you might say, you know, typically I'm in client meetings, I go to court, I'm working on files throughout the day, but I set aside 3 to 5, from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. every day to sit down and return phone calls and respond to emails. It could be that simple. The lawyer, I think, needs to communicate that then to clients and then obviously keep their word. None of this is going to work if you don't stick to the schedule or the policy that you've established. But what we've found over the years is that people who implement a process like that, communicate it well to clients, get a very high level of compliance because what frustrates people more than anything is to place a call, send an email, and not know when they're going to hear back. If the lawyer says, I, you'll you know, I, I do this activity every day from 3 to 5, and they keep their promise, and the client experiences that, they're going to have faith in it. So uh, to me, that's just absolutely key. And it also helps the lawyer and the staff keep their sanity. You know, I've heard that uh, one of the key reasons for a grievance or a malpractice issue is when clients don't get a response to their messages, when attorneys just don't do that. Um, I don't know if that's a fact or not. Do you have any information on that right quick? I certainly do, and it is absolutely true. It's always one of the top ten complaints here in Oregon. Every year, our client assistance office, which is the initial screening body for all disciplinary complaints, uh, compiles and publishes a report, and they break down the types of complaints they receive by uh, what the nature of the complaint is and by some other criteria and not not returning phone calls is always in the top ten. And, uh, but, you know, that can also belie some other issues. In some instances, that is a symptom, and it can be a symptom of an overwhelmed lawyer with too big of a caseload. It can be a symptom of a lawyer who ought to have a knowledgeable professional paralegal like Vicki um, employed by their firm so that they're not trying to do it all themselves. So... And there can be lots of other issues why people aren't getting to their phone calls, but, and part of it can even be client and case screening. We've probably all in our careers at one time or another had the client who calls literally 20 times a day. Absolutely. <laughs> so that, that does happen also in, in lawyers' defense. But um, many times it's the person who is just so overwhelmed, they're not getting to their phone calls. And they, honestly, they need help. They need to either cut back their caseload or uh, get some competent paralegals and other legal support staff in as part of the team to help with communications and with other work to be done in the office. Mm -hmm. Beverly, I have one quick tip that I've given out, and that is to uh, 
when you get an email from a client, particularly an email, is to uh, send a message back that says, I've received your message. I'm going to, um, I'll give this some thought and I'll get back with you within such and such a time, rather than trying to answer their question right away. I think that lets them know that you've gotten it and then it just gives them that comfort and then you can take the time to think about that. I agree 100%. That is an excellent tip. I like that idea very much. Well, Beverly, this has been great. There's been a lot of information for our listeners and I'm wondering how they can contact you if they have questions. Yes, you can certainly email me at beverlym at osb, as in boy, plf, as in frank, dot org. I'm also on LinkedIn. You're welcome to connect to me there. And my um, blog is at oregonlawpracticemanagement.com, and I am on Twitter also, just like Vicki. Right. I love Twitter. People don't believe how great Twitter can be, but... I probably wouldn't know you if it weren't for Twitter, so this is a good thing. Exactly. Yes. Well, Beverly, it's it's time to say goodbye. Thank you for joining me today to discuss communicating with clients. Thank you very much. Let's take another short break now, and when I come back, I'll have some paralegal news and announcements. So stay with me. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Welcome back. This is the point in the show when I share news and practice tips. There are three things that I want to tell you. They're along the lines of communicating with clients. First of all, be sure that the subject line you use in your email is something that will get the attention of the client, and they will open your email in the first place. They need to know that it's important. Be sure that you save your email to a folder or or to the client's file so that you have proof that you've done that. And the last thing is to be sure to proofread your email. So easy to make a mistake. And, you know, you, you can't skip that point in any communications with clients. That's all the time we have today for the Paralegal Voice. If you have questions about today's show, please send them to Vicki, V-I-C-K-I at paralegalmentor.com. And also, don't forget to check out my blog, paralegalmentorblog.com, and check the resources at my website. They've been designed to help you move your career in the right direction, and that's forward. This is Vicki Voison, thanking you for listening to the Paralegal Voice and reminding you to make your Paralegal Voice heard. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to The Paralegal Voice with Linda Venny and Vicki Voison. This podcast is produced by the Legal Talk Network. Be sure to get the next edition of the podcast. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.